Good morning, everyone. It's a real joy to see you here this morning. Thank you for the privilege and opportunity to come back to uh, Meadowbrook. And if we can take the monitors off my ears, that would help me a little bit if we could come down on what's right under me. How's that sounding? Can you hear okay? I don't. I want you to hear me. I just don't want to hear me, okay? Thank you for the privilege of being here this morning, and I want to say thank you uh, also for the privilege and honor of serving as your Director of Missions for the Calhoun Baptist Association. We do have now 91 churches, and that keeps us going, keeps us busy, and I hope and pray that members of Meadowbrook Congregation have some idea of the many, many ministries of the Calhoun Baptist Association across our county and beyond our county and around the world on a regular basis. I want to say a special word of thanks to to those of you especially who send notes and cards to Sandra. Those are much appreciated and mean much to me and and to her. Uh, When I told her I was coming to Meadowbrook to preach a few weeks ago when the invitation was extended, she said, maybe I can go if you're just preaching in the morning. I didn't tell her that it was for two Sundays and two services each. And um, so she's not able to do the two services. So um, I'm alone again today. But thank you for your prayers for her and for us and for the privilege we have of being a part of the Meadowbrook Baptist Church family. You will be happy to know that even though I'm not here very often, I do send my offerings. And I brought one this morning and to try to catch up a little bit. So... There you go. I know that's the biggest concern for some of you anyway. So, um, but I, I want to, um, this, this is kind of like getting to play pastor again, having two Sundays in a row with the same congregation and uh, have an opportunity to preach uh, uh, the way I like to preach, and that is in uh, series. So I'm going to do a series of four sermons starting this morning. And... Um, the whole thrust of this morning, tonight, next Sunday, will be living out God's purpose for our lives. And God has a purpose for each and every person, for every person. There are no exceptions. God has a purpose for each and every person. Do you believe that? He has a divine will and a plan for each and every one of us. The question comes, how many of us are living in God's purpose? How many of us are fulfilling God's plan and purpose for our lives. And I know some are, but I'm fearful that many Christians aren't. One of the burdens upon my life as a pastor was to help people find and fulfill God's purpose in their lives. And I've discovered along the way that there are keys, there are certain keys, there are certain master keys to the Christian life that we must all have in order to unlock God's purposes in our lives. We're going to, going to look at four characters starting this morning, going through next Sunday night, that will reveal what these keys are. This morning we're going to look at Moses, the life of Moses, a portion of his life, and we're going to discover the key that unlocked uh, Moses' purpose, uh, his God-given purpose, was obedience to God. Tonight we'll look at Joshua, and we'll take a segment of Joshua's life where he discovers the key to fulfilling God's purpose, and Joshua had a very special and unique purpose in the plan and providence of God, but the key that unlocked 
The purpose of God in his life was that he came to a place of absolute and utter and total submission, submission to God. Next Sunday morning, we'll be looking at the Apostle Paul. And uh, Paul obviously had a great mission in his life, though he didn't know it in the beginning. God captured him, God uh, changed him, and God filled him up with his Holy Spirit and used him mightily. It has been said there's never been another Christian like the Apostle Paul. But what was the key that unlocked Paul's ability to do and to fulfill the purpose of God in his life? I believe the key in Paul's life was single-mindedness. This one thing I do. Paul was an extraordinarily single-minded person. And then lastly, on next Sunday night, we will come to that premier example of fulfilling God's purpose as we look at the life of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you say, what on earth was the key in our Lord's life that enabled him to fulfill God's purpose for him, the answer to that question is quite simple. It was absolute surrender to the will of God. Surrender. So we have those words. We start with Moses. And I believe the most important word in the Christian life, obedience. We go to Joshua and we see another key that unlocks our ability to rise to that plane of living in the purpose of God. And that is submission. And then we go to Paul, single-mindedness. And then to Jesus, absolute, total surrender to the will and purpose of God. If you have your Bibles open, we're going to need our Bibles for the three chapters. And don't let that frighten you. It doesn't mean it's going to be a long sermon. It doesn't guarantee it'll be a short one. But it doesn't mean it's going to be a long one. But we have to pick up passages out of three chapters to get this story told. And um, in chapter 2, we find in the opening verses down through verse 10, the story... This is Exodus chapter 2, it's on page 64, and uh, Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and I'm just going to kind of give you the background here very quickly. Because of time, we're told uh, of uh, the, the Pharaoh of Egypt giving a decree to the midwives that they were to kill. Uh, If a male child was born, they were to kill the male child. The Pharaoh of Egypt who was the taskmaster, who was lording over the Hebrew people who were in bondage, became fearful of the fact that the Hebrews were multiplying so quickly. And uh, he said, they're multiplying like rabbits. Well, he didn't exactly say it like that, but that was the kind of feeling he had. He said, I'm, I'm looking at these people that we have in bondage, over whom we have this tyranny, over whom we have this control, and they're becoming so great in number, this thing could flip-flop very easily, and they could become the tyrants, and we could become the subjects. So we've got to find uh, something to, to make sure this never happens, so we're going to kill the male babies. Well, the midwives did not do that. They risked their own lives by not taking the lives of the, of the children, of the little 
boys. And then the, the decree came down when that was discovered and there was some explanation for why they were not doing that. We're not, we're not always on call or sometimes the baby's born before we get there, etc., etc. But then the Pharaoh said, well, I want all the male babies thrown into the Nile River. And that is when it came that Moses' mother created this little ark, this little basket, and she made it waterproof and made it in a way that he, she could hide him in the bulrushes of the Nile River, trying to spare the life of her son Moses. Now this is important because we're already getting to the place that we see the, the divine providence of God in the background working out to make sure that Moses' plan and purpose and his divine economy was fulfilled. So here Moses is. And his sister, his sister has been commissioned to stay close to the river and close to where this little ark has been placed containing this little baby's life. And the Pharaoh's daughter came down for a time of bathing and a time in the Nile. And and one of the servants saw this little ark, this little basket, and she heard the sound of the child, and they took the baby. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter was so taken by this child and had an attachment immediately to this child. And you'll remember Moses' sister went in then and said, uh, if you're taking the child, do you want me to go and find a Hebrew woman to nurse the child and to care for the child? And that was perfectly agreeable to Pharaoh's daughter. And then here comes Moses' own mother, divine providence, the oversight of the power and sovereignty of God in Moses' life, preparing him. So now he becomes this person of statue and position growing up in the royal family of Egypt, educated that way, trained that way, everything was given to him now as he's coming along as um, the grandson of Pharaoh. But we come down to verse 11 and something happens. In verse 11 of chapter 2, this tells you the timeline of how scripture unfolds. When we get to chapter 2 of Exodus verse 11, Moses is 40 years of age. And now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at the burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, uh, one of his brethren. Now what has happened while Moses has been growing up under the care of a Hebrew woman? Even though he is the second most powerful man in Egypt, he's second, uh, he's first in line actually to the throne if something happened to Pharaoh. Second most powerful man in Egypt. Here he is with all of the rights and all of the regals and all of the privileges of royalty. But as, as he was uh, nurtured and cared for by a Hebrew mother, there was born in his heart a compassion and a burden for the Hebrew people. And when he sees this scene of an Egyptian killing uh, a Hebrew, he looked this way and that way, verse 12 says, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting, and he said to one of them, uh, and, uh, excuse me, and he said to one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely 
this thing is known. Then Pharaoh heard of the matter, and he sought to kill Moses. And Moses fled the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now we see a significant transition in Moses' life. This man who is determined... Uh, who is de- destined to be in the will of God, to serve in a, in a marvelous purpose and plan in the will of God. Moses was to become a type of Christ for us. He is a type of Christ. He is the emancipator. He is the savior of God's people. And God now is orchestrating behind the scenes and moving in Moses' life that his purpose might be fulfilled. But Moses is getting off track here. He, he is doing something that we tend to do as, as Christians. Moses began to have an understanding in his heart, in his soul, in the inner recesses of his being. He began to have this compulsion toward serving the God of the Hebrew people. He saw himself as an emancipator of the Hebrew people. He saw himself as their deliverer, their savior. But we notice at the very outset that though all of these feelings and emotions and convictions are coming upon Moses, and if we had time, we could investigate the roots of those feelings. But it's obvious. It's right on the surface of the passage. It is his mother's influence. It is his DNA. But what he did when he killed this Egyptian, he took matters into his own hands. He had a concept of the will of God. He had a concept of the purpose of God. He had an understanding of what his destiny might be. But rather than waiting on God to unpack the plan, to reveal the plan, to divinely enable him to to fulfill the plan, Moses suddenly has these matters in his own hands. And because he's gotten off track, because he's taken God's God's plan, and he's tried to humanize it in a way that he's saying, I'll get this done. I'll liberate these people one by one if necessary. Well, God had never instructed Moses to do such a thing, not yet. So for 40 years now, he's about to enter into a wilderness land. He, it became a period of disconnect. And after he heard the threat of Je, uh, uh, Pharaoh, he began to make his journey away from home for the hope of saving his life. You know the story as it unfolds here. He met Jethro's daughters at the well. He, he became a gentleman in terms of handling those shepherds and all their sheep who came and kind of pushed these girls away from the water of the well. And they went home and told their daddy about this gentleman who had so interceded for them at the well. And they said, he said, well, where is he? Why didn't you bring him home? And they fetched Moses, brought him home for dinner. And Jethro took a liking, as we would say, to Moses. And Moses then was given his daughter Zipporah. And uh, there they go. Now we find that Moses is living with Jethro in the wilderness land, watching a herd of sheep. In fact, when you look at the name that was given to their child down in verse 21 of chapter 2, then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah, that is Jethro gave Zipporah to his daughter to Moses, and they bore a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. 
Now, if you don't believe Scripture is putting an emphasis on the disobedience of God and the, I mean of Moses and the waywardness of Moses, look at what they named their son. Gershom. If you have a marginal reference Bible, and most of you will, you can follow the little number by Gershom to that center column or side column and see for yourself what it means. It means that he is a stranger, that he is, uh, that he is a sojourner, that he is, tempor- he is a temporary resident. Moses was so burdened by the fact that he had gone away from the will and purpose of God that he said, I feel like I'm a stranger in a foreign land. There is a disconnect. But here's the main, first main point of this message. Everything else to hear has been groundwork. What is it that's beginning to take Moses so far away from God's intended purpose in his life? We find it in verse 21. And Moses was content. Moses was content. And this is what happens to so many of us. We become content. We see him in the first 40 years of his life. And here he comes now with the vim and the vigor for life. Uh, He has a vision of what he wants to be, what he wants to do, what he wants to accomplish. And as he begins to understand to some degree that this has to do with the plan of God, he comes in full force. Here is a man who who initially displayed his passion for the things of God. A man who displayed his passion for wanting to do what he felt God wanted him to do. And suddenly that passion has gone. He jumped into action, but now he's jumping into contentment. He found himself sitting in no man's land. Contentment. I wonder if I'm talking to somebody here this morning who has just become content. And I know this is maybe a well-worn message for some of us hearing preachers talk about being content. But the problem is we get too content. We find ourselves in our comfort zones. We find ourselves in our places, in a place where we lose our passion. We lose our burden. We lose our thrill and our joy in serving God. We become content. You understand what I'm saying, congregation? We become content. Before us is a man, though not an Egyptian, was destined to the throne. A man who had a great purpose in his life. Now content to sit and watch sheep. What happened? Forty years have passed him by. And he's living, now living, a mediocre life. Does Jesus want us to live a mediocre life? Does he say anything about us living a mediocre life? Well, he does. That word mediocre means medium quality, neither good or bad. It really means just living an average life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Jesus didn't come that we might have a so-so Christian life, a get-by Christian life. He came that we might have a wonderful, abundant, victorious life. Here's what Jesus said about mediocrity in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. And the angel of the church of, Laod- of the Laodiceans write, John write these to the Laodicean. Write these words to the Laodiceans. I know your works, that you are neither cold or hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Those are the words of Jesus. You say, what does that mean? It means lukewarmness, mediocrity in our lives and our relationship to Christ are nauseating to him. 
He says, either be cold or be hot, but don't get stuck in the middle. Just content with getting by. God never intended us to live that way. One thing I love about Meadowbrook Baptist Church is that you still sing hymns. Now you jazz them up a little bit and sing them a little differently, but you sing the hymns. I love the hymns, and I know I'm old enough to say that and be understood by some. I love, I love hymns. I, I believe that, I, I do believe there was a period in the life of the church and Southern Baptist life that some of us got more of our theology from our hymnology than we did from the sermons we heard the preachers preaching because we were singing theology. We were singing doctrine. Stephen Oford used to say, when you marry good hymnology to good theology, hymnology and theology, hymnology and theology, it goes up in doxology. I like that. And I'm looking at an old hymn. Some of you are saying, what are you talking about a hymn for? I'm coming to that. Just be patient with me. The old hymn. The old hymn, Give Your Best to the Master. Any of you remember that one? Goodness, don't tell me you don't know that song. Do you know that? Some of you? Some of you are nodding. I don't know if you're agreeing or sleeping, but you're nodding. (laughs) I'll take it as a yes. Give your best to the master. Give your best to the master. Give of your strength of your youth. Throw your soul's fresh glowing ardor into the battle of truth. Jesus set the example. Dauntless was he, young and brave. Give your loyal devotion. Give him the best that you have. Don't you think we should give Jesus our best? Isn't he worthy of our best? Not our mediocre living, not our... Simply getting by living but our best. Chuck Swindoll, a name most of you know and may listen to and appreciate, said, long enough we have taken our cues from those who ask why be different or reason or reason within their minds. Let's just do enough to get by. Long enough have we settled for less than our best and convinced ourselves that quality and integrity and authenticity are negotiable. Call me a dreamer. But I'm convinced that achieving one's full potential is still a goal worthy of striving for. That excellence is still a worthy pursuit, even if most yawn and sneer. And yes, even if we fail occasionally while reaching for those goals, failure, remember, is not a crime. Moses represents kingdom citizens. He represents many kingdom citizens just content with the way things are. But what created Moses' circumstances. What brought him to this place of a sudden disconnect? And I found the answer to that in a little book written by uh, Major Ian Thomas, a little book called The Saving Life of Christ. If you've never read any of Major Thomas, you should get a hold of his writings. Major Ian Thomas. Listen to this. Folks, this, this is going to come down to where we live when it comes to talking about living just an average, mediocre life. Moses, uh, Major Thomas said, Moses lost his sense of God, and maybe you have lost your sense of God for the same reasons. You are not called, now listen to this. this, What I'm about to read to you is one of the, probably one of the, the most significant secrets I've discovered 
about serving God and being a Christian. You are not called upon to commit yourself to a need or to a task or to a mission. Now this is going to turn some thinking upside down. God is not primarily and preeminently calling upon us to make a commitment to some assignment, to a task, to a mission, to a need. You and I are called upon to commit ourselves to God. To God. It is then He who takes care of the consequences and commits you where He wants you. He is the Lord of heaven. He is the head of the body. And he, glor- he is gloriously competent to assume responsibilities. Man is not indispensable to God, but God is indispensable to man. Let me put this in a way that I stumbled upon years ago. When I was a young pastor back in the early 70s, one of the big emphases in church life then was the will of God. A lot of books written about it, a lot of preachers preaching about it. And I found myself caught up in this whole passionate pursuit of knowing and fulfilling the will of God. Young people were coming to me. I, when I was a young pastor, I had more young people who would talk to me. Not so much anymore. But when I was young, the young people would come and talk to me. And they said, Brother Roger... You talk about the will of God. How can I know the will of God? How can I know the will of God? I want to know the will. I want to know whom I'm to marry. I want to know where I'm supposed to go to college. I want to know what career vocation. I want to know the will of God. I want to know the will of God. And I spent hours over a period of time agonizing and trying to communicate the formula to these young people, a biblical path to knowing the will of God, how to know the will of God, how to pursue the will of God. And one day the Lord spoke to my heart and he said, stop doing that. Stop it. I said, Lord, don't you want me to tell them how to know your will? Isn't this an important topic? And the Lord spoke to me as clearly as I hope I'm speaking to you this morning. He said, stop Telling people to pursue my will and start telling people to pursue me, pursue me, pursue me, pursue me. Because once we are pursuing God and we are in a passionate heart, soul pursuit of God, guess what happens? Knowing the will of God comes packed in that package. Knowing God. Contentment, mediocrity, lukewarmness, lethargy comes from attempting to do the work of God in our own strength, in our own abilities, in our own, like Moses. I'll do this. I will do this. And he killed the man and buried the man. He said, I will be the savior of these Hebrew bond slaves. It's in my heart to set them free. And he struck out on a path that he perceived to be his purpose in life and he missed it because he took off before he ever met God. I know what I'm talking about, ladies and gentlemen. I've been there. I remember still in the younger years of my life as a pastor. I had a man 
in that congregation, there was a man, I should say, in that congregation who was a friend of mine. He was a businessman, well-to-do, did something for me that no one else has done, at least quite like he did. Back then, I didn't have a lot of money, still don't have a lot of money, but I had very, very, very little then. And I was going to go on a long trip. I say it was a long trip. It was to Chicago, to Wheaton College for a Billy Graham event. And um, he came to me on Sunday night before I left on Monday, and he said, Preacher, you got any money in your pocket? I said, yes, sir, I've got $20. And I, I, I was embarrassed to say that. I thought that might be too much. And um, he said, $20, and you're going to drive to Chicago? I said, well, i got a credit card to get gas, and I'm staying in a home when I get there and have meals at the school. He pulled out a wad of money like that. I almost fainted. <laughs> he flipped out two or three $100 bills. I tell you, I'll just, I'll never forget that. And what I'm telling you has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon. I just got, I just got excited about remembering that. But this, this man, this man was a hard worker in the church. He was the church treasurer. He was one of the best men's Bible teachers we had. Had a large Sunday school class. He was out on visitation. He was a deacon. He did it all. And by, and in addition to that, he was a businessman running a business and was working probably 60, 70 hours a week. But I discovered if I wanted something done, he was the guy to see. I discovered that to be true in most places. If you want something done, get the busiest person in the church to do it because they're the one that'll do it. Everybody else will, will procrastinate. But he walked in one day. I can still see him standing in front of my desk and he said, Preacher... I'm tired. I'm going to have to give up. I thought he was going to say give up treasure, give up teaching, give up Tuesday night visitation, give up. But he laid a ring of keys on my desk and said I give up everything. Now that didn't that wasn't reflecting anything wrong in his heart. He was a good man, a moral man, a righteous man. What it reflected was that he was dog-tired. Tired. And part of the reason he was tired is because he was racing, 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 running, 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 doing things that God had never told him to do. And I suspect there may be someone here this morning in this room who is working yourself into a frenzy, doing something God never instructed you to do. Friends, when you get in the will of God, in the rhythm of his will, in the delight of his will, doing what God says do instead of what man says do, walking in the pleasure of God and pleasing God, you will discover a whole new dynamic to your Christian life. I promise you that on the authority of God's word. Moses had an encounter with God. I've got five minutes to do the last two points of this message. So you hang on. Here we go. Moses had an encounter with God. Chapter 3 and verses 2 and 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flaming fire from the midst of a bush. Now Moses... He, 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 he went to Jethro's house when he was about 40. He's going to be leaving Jethro's house, guess what, when he's about 80. Forty years have passed. Forty years in the wilderness. Forty years tending sheep. Forty years a stranger in a, in, a, in a foreign country. Being an alien, not even belonging, detached, living out there 
Uh, Here is a man who was once prince in Egypt, wealthy as could be, educated at the Harvards and the Yales of his day. And here is a man who was sitting ready to take the most powerful office in all of the world. And for 40 years, he's been tending smelly sheep. And I know that all through that time, Moses was sitting on those hillsides, licking his wounds, thinking about his failures, his inadequacies, thinking about how he'd come into the grips of contentment. But then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, he saw something and he heard something. He saw a bush and he heard a voice. Now, here's how Moses got out of his doldrums. Here's how he got out of the wilderness into God's purpose. Same thing's going to be true of you and me. Seeing something and hearing something. Moses saw something. His defeat, his fear, his encouragement, discouragement, his disillusionment, among many other factors in his life, are now coming to be dealt with in this bush. I want to start with a vision first. It was a vision that communicated to Moses that God still uses the simple and the ordinary to accomplish his will. A bush, a bush, just an old desert bush. I think Moses might have been sitting on those hillsides tending those sheep thinking, you know, I need to rise up to a level, to a level to be qualified to serve God. I must have a greatness and a strength and I don't have that. I don't have it anymore. I'm just a shepherd. I'm not a prince. I'm a shepherd. I'm not wearing the colognes of Egypt. I'm wearing the scent of stinky sheep. And I'm out here where nobody knows me. There everybody knew me. Who am I? Who am I to be used by God? I want to tell you something. If you're feeling like that this morning, you're probably better qualified than the person who feels the other way. Feeling your own humility, your own weakness, your own need to lean heavily upon the arm of God. Paul said in his first Corinthian letter, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, not uh, many according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the things that are wise, or to put to shame the things that, which are mighty, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, Moses had already uh, had a moment in time in his life where he flexed his muscles and he could have said, see what I did, but he had to learn that it wasn't by his strength, it was by God's strength. This bush symbolized God's vision and message to Moses. Then God spoke to Moses in verses 4 through 10, and he said something. He said something. Where are we? Chapter 3? Are we in chapter 3? All right, thank you. That was just a test, by the way. And when the Lord saw, saw that he turned aside, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not draw near this place, but take off your sandals. For the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Oh, folks, I wish we had just a moment to camp out here because when God started talking, he started telling Moses who he was. 
And could I say to us tonight, can I, or this morning, could I say to us this morning, you say, I, I need strength to do the will of God. I need, I need passion to do the will of God. I need a renewed desire to do the will of God. And I'll tell you where that is found. It is found again in knowing God. What did God say to him? He said, I'm the God of Abraham. It was Abraham who asked the angel, can this be? Can this be? Sarah laughed. Sarah laughed. My wife laughed. Why did she laugh? Because I'm a hundred years old and she's almost as old. And you're saying we have, we're going to have a child. But the, the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself said, is anything too hard for the Lord? And Abraham represents the answer to that question. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Then we come to Isaac. Isaac represents a God who provide. Who will provide the, the, the fire? We have the wood. We have the knife. But where is the fire? Where is the fire? God will provide. That's Isaac. And then Jacob, the God of Jacob. And this is the God of brokenness. The God who will bring a man, a woman, a boy, a girl to a place that he will shatter them, break them, cripple them, that he might crown them, break them down, that he might pick them up, and he might put them back on the path that they should go in the right way. So Moses is now seeing an image of God. He is in that burning bush. Any old bush would do. That's what Major Ian Thomas said. Any old bush will do. Any old bush will do. It doesn't have to be a particular bush. Any old bush will do. Moses needed to see that he was nothing but an old bush. And when the fire of God came upon his life, he could be used by God. He had to hear who God was. He had to be reminded that the work that God had called him to do was not a work he had to do in himself, that God would provide. He is the God of Abraham. He is the God of Isaac. He is the God of Jacob. And now Moses is ready to go. Now we turn our attention to chapter 4 and just to say a word about what happens next. Moses, obedient, surrender to God. He, he, he dealt with all kinds of excuses. He said, I'm nobody. This is back in chapter 3. You don't need to turn to it. But he, he, he had the argument, I, I, um, I'm nobody. How can I go and represent you? Chapter 13, uh, verses 13 through 22 in chapter 3, he said, I don't know your name. God says, well, my name is I am. You say, what does that mean? It says God was saying I'm the eternal, self-sufficient, immortal, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all-powerful God of creation. I'm the God of judgment. I'm the God who can do what needs to be done th- through you. Just go tell him I am. And then he dealt with the elders in the first nine verses of chapter 4. He said, they won't believe me. They won't believe me. They won't listen. They won't respond. Can I tell you something? It is not your business to get somebody to respond. It's not your business to make somebody believe you. That's God's work. You are the messenger. I'm the messenger. You are the servant. I am the servant. We're not responsible for the outcome. That is in the hands of a sovereign God. That is a work of the Spirit of God. It is our duty and our privilege to simply yield and go and do. Moses had to learn that. He said, I'm not a good speaker. God said, I can help you with that. I'll give you a translator. Somebody else can do it better. And God said, I don't know that anybody else can do it better. I'm sending you Every excuse was gone. Major Thomas says, do you see that bush over there? That scruffy, scraggy looking thing? That bush would have done. Any old bush will do. Do you see this beautiful looking bush? So shapely, so fine, this bush would have done too. For you see, Moses, any old bush will do. Any old bush, if only God is in the bush. So Moses surrendered his life. And chapter 4, 18 through 20 
We find him, I love this verse 20 of chapter 4, Then Moses took his wife, his sons, and set them on a donkey, and returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. There's the turning point. Verse 20 of chapter 4, Moses now steps out on a new path in life to walk in obedience to God. This is an incredible thing. Forty years in Egypt as a prince. Forty years in the wilderness as a pauper, as a shepherd. And now he's going to spend the next 40 years of his life as a great prophet of God. The, the patriarchal figure of the Old Testament. Moses rises head and shoulders above them all. And how could that be? Because he stands on one word. Obey God. Obey God. Obey God. I urge you, my brothers and sisters, this morning to obey God. I urge you to be encouraged by the fact that you may feel that you're just an old scraggy bush, but any bush will do when God is in it. Do the will and the purpose of God. If you didn't hear anything else I said, especially our younger people this morning, know this, God has a divine purpose for you. One of the most liberating truths I ever heard was when somebody said, Roger, you are here for a purpose. You don't have to wander through life aimlessly, meaninglessly. God has a purpose. I said, are you telling me the truth? He said, I'm telling you the truth, and I can give you the word of God to prove it. That was a great breakthrough for me, and it set the course of my life, and I believe it will set the course of your life if you'll simply say, God, I don't really understand your will. I don't know all the ins and outs of what your will may contain for me. But I'm going to say this, God, right now, this morning, my main pursuit is not necessarily the details of your will. My main pursuit is to know you, to know you, to know you, to know you, with the understanding that the more I know you, the better I understand the details of your will for my life. Amen? Amen. Well, let's stand together for a word of prayer and then uh, a song of invitation and response. And then, Brother David, will close our service. Father, we ask you, please, in these uh, closing moments of this morning worship service, that uh, our hearts should be fixed on you and surrendered to you. And may we, like Moses, move through those steps of uh, understanding your will, but yet trying to do it in human strength, becoming so discouraged that we don't attempt to do it at all but to coming full circle that we hear a word from you that declares your strength and your power and your glory to us and your promise that all we've got to do is obey you and you will take care of the rest. Thank you for these great truths from the life of Moses. And if there's one person here this morning who needs to publicly express a decision for you regarding the word they've heard, please give that individual a heart of obedience. And Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, Lord Jesus, as personal Savior, may that person say to you today, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I acknowledge you as the Savior, the one and only Savior, the Son of God who died on the cross and was risen from the dead, that I might have life. I come to give my life to you today. Bring that one to you who needs you as Savior. Bless us as we sing now. Lord, have your way in each of our hearts. We pray in Christ's name.